a sense of um, a humility here today, and a need, a need for God. <clears throat> Would you pray with me? Lord, there's much that has been brought into the sanctuary today. Uh, we've carried it with us, maybe throughout the week or or just recently. Uh, a weight, a weight on our shoulders. Uh, something that uh, we're meant to bring to you today. Lord, things might seem crazy, chaotic. Uh, outside of our control or grasp. But in coming here today, we're going to be reminded that you are overall, that you are sovereign. You have a plan. And the stage is set. And you've brought it to us. And you've given nothing into our laps that you do not intend to see us through. So we're looking to you this morning for strength, for encouragement. And we thank you that we have come to the Word of God, which is sure and reliable and anchor. So, Lord, may we not leave here today as we came, but full of strength, full of courage for what you have for us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm opening my Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 2. Daniel, chapter 2. Now, Daniel's broken up into several uh, distinct portions, ten of them in all. And chapter 2 is one of them, but it's just too big to tackle in one morning. Okay, So we're going to look this morning at the first half, okay, verses 1 to 30. Would you stand with me as we read Daniel chapter 2? In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. And the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell the servants the dream, and we will show the interpretation. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. But if you show the dream and its interpretation, you shall receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. Therefore, show me the dream and its interpretation. They answered a second time and said, Let the king tell his servants the dream, and we will show its interpretation. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time, because you see that the word for me is firm. If you do not make the dream known to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak, lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Therefore, tell me the dream 
and I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. The Chaldeans answered the king and said, There's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods, whose dwelling is not with flesh. Because of this, the king was angry and very furious and commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. So the decree went out, and the wise men were about to be killed, and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made this matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, and have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Therefore Daniel went into Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said thus to him, Do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king, and I will show the king the interpretation. Verse 25. Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and thus, and said thus to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? Daniel answered the king and said, No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what is to be. But as for me... This mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have, more than all of the living, but in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, and that you may know the thoughts of your mind. You can have a seat. Oh. <clears throat>
You know, the U.S. Navy SEALs are known for their hardiness, right? To endure the harshest elements, right? I mean, these guys are in the ocean. And outside pressures to come upon them circumstantially and yet still be able to complete the mission that they've been sent out to do. Uh, Their training is considered to be the most demanding and rigorous of any military training in the world. Except from apart from maybe that men's ministry that we saw last week, you know, that fourth musketeer. That looked pretty, I don't know, that looked pretty intense. But they say that the SEALs is, is is the hardest, right? And this explains why so few are actually graduate to become SEALs. Of the 1,000 who enter the academy, only 250 will actually become SEALs. One in four. Okay. Now, one particular part of this training that they go through is called the underwater competency test. Okay. And in this 20-minute session, trainees are expected to stay under the water okay, with their scuba gear on, Okay, while enduring a simulated attack by their trainer. Okay, it includes tying knots in their hoses, ripping their face mask off, and in general causing all kinds of mayhem while they're under the water. Okay, trying not to drown. The success rate on the first attempt is 25%. I wonder what the success rate is of Christians under different, yet no less extreme, kinds of pressure. Is it better than the seal rate? Listen, I'm talking about when it feels like Satan is tying the hose on your spiritual oxygen, and the world is ripping your mask off, and you can't see, and you're wondering how much longer you're going to be able to breathe, and you just don't know how much more there is to this test. My physical needs aren't being met. Okay? My finances took a nosedive. Socially, I feel cut off. Medically, I'm not healing. Maritally, all is not bliss. In fact, maybe it's worse than I thought. Okay. Now add to that those whirlwinds, the decisions... The bad decisions of those that you care about, you see that happening around you. The tragedies in our nation and in your neighborhood. And the guilt of your own personal failures as spouses and parents and above all, servants of Jesus. And you know what? You're staring down a full-blown crisis. In order to increase the percentage, okay, what the Navy did, okay, to, to get a better passing rate for the underwater competency test, they began teaching SEAL recruits principles that would help them overcome in the moment of crisis. Okay. And the first thing that they said was to set your goals in small increments. Isn't that interesting? Just focus on what you need to do today. Right now, you need to get to lunch. Get to lunch. Then you need to get to dinner. Get to dinner. Okay. Be faithful in the small things and you'll be prepared when the big one comes. Does that sound familiar to you? You know, they probably could have saved a lot of time and money if they opened their Bibles and read Daniel. Because the personal resolve in Daniel chapter 1 to remain faithful to God in a very small and private way, right? I'm just not going to eat the king's food. Even while they respected the Babylonian system and they had to live within it, this became a preparatory step 
towards what God had in mind in the crisis of chapter 2. Right? With that small step of resolve, Daniel's companions, they grew in their confidence in God. Now, you can start with that kind of living today, right? Because you determine to yourself to honor God by what God has said in His Word. You know what He said? Well, first He said, believe in Me. Believe in His Son. That's the first thing. Have you done that? Believe in the Lord Jesus, Acts 16.31. For by believing, by trusting, or the way other words would be resting, okay, welcoming the gift of God, which is His Son, dying on a cross, then you'll have this. He says, you will be saved. I can put it another way. You'll have a new heart that seeks to honor God and love your neighbor. It's the biggest step you'll ever take in life, but all you need to do it is a willingness to say, you know what, I'm going to stop life on my terms and I'm going to allow God to have His way. I can't do it. I need you. That's the prayer of a child of God. And then every other command of Jesus that we read about will become a pleasant thing. I want to do that, right? And not because you have to. But if, on the other hand, you harden yourself, even today, because you're hearing the Word of God, even if you, if you harden yourself today and you carry on and I'm not going to believe that, and you refuse to heed to the truth of God as what we see in His revealed will, okay, here's some examples, okay, such as that you abstain from sexual immorality, okay, or how about this, that you humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, casting all your anxieties on Him. That's what a humble person does. I'm not going to worry about this. I'm going to throw it on God, okay. How about this one? That you keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Okay, these are just, it's just three. But you're saying, you know what, I want to do this. And you say, I want to be useful to the king. In some, you're saying this. I'm asking you to see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. What kind of person do you want to be to the Lord? Okay. The seals have a saying, okay. Um, in fact, they have many good sayings. Um, but this one is pertaining to those who keep on making the same mistakes, okay, and yet refuse, okay, to conduct themselves with any kind of humility. And this is in the course of their training, okay? Now, you'll have to pardon the terminology here a little bit, okay? okay I think you can handle this, though, all right? But don't miss what they, what they mean by this, okay? Here's what they say. But bear in mind, this is the military, okay? They say... You can't polish a turd. What I mean is, stop being one spiritually. Okay, is this not what Paul said in 2 Timothy? Now, in a great house, there are only not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use, some for dishonorable. Therefore, here it is. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. Paul is saying that our character determines our use to God. 
You see, Daniel and his friends were polishable, right? They were polishable because they were humble and refused to be unclean in God's eyes. And God is going to exalt these youths, okay, who have chosen to honor God over against, okay, and this is in contrast to the insecurity, the futility of the ungodly in their, in their culture. And this is the great contrast of chapter 2. It's how the godly, the ungodly, versus the righteous respond when a crisis is at hand. Okay, This chapter is going to help us answer this question. How has God called me to meet the crises? Notice I said crises of my times. Now, it's important that we don't miss the key moments of chapter 1, okay? In a way, they kind of foreshadow what's coming, okay? One we've already mentioned. Faithfulness in the small things is going to impact how you handle and tackle the big ones. Well, here's another important point. Did you see this in verse 17? Look at chapter 1, verse 17. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. You know what? Nebuchadnezzar did everything he could to turn these young men of Judah, probably 50 or 75 in all, into spiritually numb servants of his kingdom. But here's something profound. God took his faithful few, these four, and made them better servants for Nebuchadnezzar than Nebuchadnezzar could make for himself. How about that? Because the best kind of servant is the one whose ultimate loyalty is with the true God. Okay? You can trust such a man or woman because their goal is not to act for their own sakes, but to do what's right in God's eyes. And God gave these four youths such tremendous skill and learning Listen, that they were reckoned ten times better than everyone else in his kingdom. You say, well, wow, they were really smart. No, that's God. That's, what you're, that's God. That's the power of God for those who trust in him. It's not their talent or skill or their heritage. God gave it to them. But in addition to their learning, did you notice this about Daniel? What's it say about him? And Daniel had understanding... In all visions and dreams. Okay, so to Daniel, God gave a very particular gift the gift of understanding visions and dreams. Now, let me just say something about that. Okay, God has at many times in the scriptures spoken to his people through dreams in their sleep. Okay, take Jacob in the Old Testament, for example. Remember him? Saw the ladder, saw God, the angels descending and descending. Or Peter in the New Testament. Remember, the sheet came down, okay? Two examples. But I want you to note that these and others like them were for a, what you might say, a revelatory purpose. Okay, God was still revealing His will. That has now changed. You say, well, how so? How has that changed? Well, that's a good question. Would you turn to the book of Hebrews for a second? Do a little page turn there. Hebrews chapter 1, I want you to see this.
The youth should know this verse. I think they looked at it this week. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. Did you notice the contrast between how God spoke in the past with how God has now spoken in the last days, of which, by the way, we are a part of. Okay, In days past, He spoke at many times and in many ways, and that included dreams and visions. But now He has spoken, note the singularity, He has spoken definitively. How so? By His Son. So what you say, well, Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. And what that means is this, there is no more revelations needed. Okay, There's no more books that are going to be added to the Word of God. Jesus is it. We do not need anything more beyond Him. The story of Jesus has been given through His apostles, right? The apostles of Christ. They had a special authority to speak on His behalf, and that resulted in the writing of what we call the New Testament. So with the death of the last apostle, the era of special revelation also ended. So here's what that means as it relates to dreams today. Listen, you can very well have a dream that motivates you towards godly living or service. I mean, even while you're asleep, right? That's what I'm talking about. I don't doubt that for a minute. Many people have had dreams that were even the precursors to receiving the gospel of Christ. Have you not heard of many, many Muslims that have had dreams pointing them towards Jesus? I remember a dream of many, many years ago that impressed upon me the second coming of Christ. I just had this feeling. It, it, it arrested me. Okay, it, it almost paralyzed me. But was it something that I relied on? No. Okay. It was a small thing that, that I then took and filtered through God's Word and what it told me about Christ's return. And that's what you do. You filter subjective happenings through the Word of God. Because the Word is what's sure. The Word is what is reliable. Okay? Even the book of Jude warns against false teachers who quote, here I quote, relying on their dreams, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. Okay? So a dream that claims to have a further revelation from God, okay, or leads a person to walk contrary to the gospel, defile your flesh, listen, that's a dream from hell. And you throw it off like you throw off your dirty clothes. So understand that Daniel was given a special gift pertaining to visions and dreams because this was a mode through which God often revealed truth in those days. Okay. Are you with me? Now, noting that, do you find it coincidental that chapter 2, verse 1, begins this way? In the second year of the reign of Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Oh, man. God is up to something, right? And here's what we know. It involves the king, right? Did you know the Bible has more to say about Nebuchadnezzar than it does about any other pagan king? God had a plan for this man, by the way. And you need to watch the progression of this man's knowledge and faith of the true God as you move along in this book. Okay, so keep that on the back burner of your mind. It's going to involve him. 
It's also going to involve Daniel, right? Because the king had dreams. And that's an indication that somehow Daniel is going to be involved in this situation. Now, maybe you scholars out there are trying to reconcile the dating. Anybody out here doing the math? Nobody? All right, well, I'm going to tell it to you anyway, okay? Did you notice that it says that it is the second year of, of Nebuchadnezzar? And some of you are going, well, wait a second, wait a second, okay. I thought Daniel and his friends just completed their third year of training. What, wasn't it three years of Babylonian training? But it's the second year of Nebuchadnezzar. So does that mean that chapter 2 falls somewhere within chapter 1? Right? That it happens sometime in the middle of their training? No, I believe it follows after. But here's what you need to know, okay? Time reckoning, uh, what Daniel was doing was using the Babylonian uh, reckoning for time. Okay? So whenever a Babylonian king came to the throne, that year was not considered their first year, but rather their accession year. Okay? So for example... I started as a pastor in 2018, but I started in September. By Babylonian standards, that was not my first year. That was my accession year. That was when I came to the pastorate. This year, 2019, will be my full first year. That's how they did it in the Babylonian um, records. Okay. So Daniel's first year of training was actually Nebuchadnezzar's accession year. And that meant his second year of training was his Nebuchadnezzar's first full year of reign. And therefore, when you get to the third year of training, you have the second year of his reign. So, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams, then, came the same year, but shortly after Daniel entered the king's service. And tell you what, it was just in time. Right? Just in time. God had his men, and he had them in place. Now, get this. He had them in place for what? For a time of all-out government crisis. I mean, we're talking serious state of emergency. Have you ever stopped to think that God has you where he has you for the crisis? Well, our natural response is, what are the odds of this? You know, I just went on vacation and now this is going to happen? Like, really? Right? This is how we think. What are the odds of that? But we also know that there is a God who controls the odds, right? And what does that tell you? That he has you there for the emergency, for the disaster, for the moment of trial. Maybe his plan is not for you to go around it, but to be right there in it. Now I'll tell you what, sometimes like Daniel, God brings it right into your lap. There is no avoiding it. But only this, will you rise to it? Will you rise to it? So here's how this happened, okay? Look at this, end of verse 1. Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His spirit was troubled and his sleep left him. These weren't just any dreams, okay? The idea is these are deeply troubling dreams. Okay, to the point where you woke up and he couldn't go back to sleep because of the anxiety. Now, isn't it something that the most powerful man on earth at this time was unsettled by a little dream? Does that seem interesting to you? Does this not attest to the insecurity of the human heart? 
When we're consumed by the here and now, the temporary kingdoms that we're building, we're amassing for ourselves, all it takes is a glimpse of our fading mortality to shake us at our core. What am I, what am I building my life on? Right? And such was the disturbance of Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 2, Then the king commanded that the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and stood before the king. Now to make matters worse, okay, it appears that whatever the dream was, the details of it eluded him. It seems that Nebuchadnezzar forgot what the dream was. But what remained with him was the terror of it all. So he summons the brain trust of the Babylonians, okay? This, you could see, is his cabinet. You've got the magicians, and of course, okay, this is not like the kind that pulls rabbits out of their hats, okay? They're not there to entertain him, okay? By magicians is meant fortune tellers, okay? Or those who dealt with the occult. Or it could have referred to a class of learned scholars. The word was used both ways, okay? They're smart guys. Then there are the enchanters, or your translation might have astrologers, okay? Stargazers, who they determine your destiny by how they, what the skies were saying. And then you've got sorcerers, right? And these were the spiritualists, okay? The, the mediums, those who would talk with the dead. And last to be mentioned are the Chaldeans, right? You know, the Chaldeans were actually a group of people in southern Babylonia. But by this time period, they'd become known as the wisest of the wise, okay? So you'll also notice that these Chaldeans were the spokesmen, right? They're the ones who do the speaking in the chapter. Now, Daniel and his friends were not included, right? They're not there. So either they refused to allow their counsel to be mixed in with the ungodly, which is possible, but more likely, remember, they're just apprentices, right? They're just newly graduated and more likely than not, they were not sought for. What, what you see here is the experienced advisors, right? <clears throat> the older group. Verse 3. And the king said to them, I had a dream, and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show the interpretation. Now, something very interesting happens in the book, beginning with verse 4. Did you see how it says they answered in Aramaic? Aramaic was sort of a common language of the empire, okay? And from this verse, from chapter 2, verse 4, all the way, chapter 3, 4, 5, 6 to 7, is written, the book of Daniel is written in Aramaic. So chapter 1 is written in Hebrew, 2 through 7, written in Aramaic, 8 through 12, back to Hebrew again. You say, well, why is that? It's given us some structure for understanding the book. And interestingly, chapters 2 to 7, this Aramaic section, deals with God's rule over these Gentile nations. Okay, it's very purposeful writing. It's trying to communicate something in the overall message. So you see some structure in this book. Look at this. So chapter 2, you've got four Gentile kingdoms followed by an eternal kingdom, right? And we have the dream of the great image. Then you go to chapter 7. Here you see, again, four Gentile kingdoms, followed by an eternal kingdom. But here it's a vision of these beasts. Now look at this. Chapter 3. Here's a story of persecution, 
and deliverance in the fiery furnace. Well, that corresponds to chapter 6, which is also about persecution, but it's deliverance in the lion's den. And right in the middle, you have the humbling of two Gentile kings, first of Nebuchadnezzar, chapter 4, and then of Belshazzar in chapter 5. You see the structure there, right? Say, why? Well, what's what's significant about that? Remember, Daniel's grand message is this. However proud and arrogant human rulers may be, God is able to humble them. He's able to save his faithful, and he will establish his kingdom. So there's a message here. Be encouraged. God is in control. But here's their response, right, in verse 4. Then the Chaldeans said to the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we'll show you the interpretation, right? So uh, what do you got, right? Uh, Give us a scoop, okay? What do you remember about your dream? You see, these guys had um, dream books. Did you know that? They actually had books that were filled of different dreams, and they could go and they could scour over their library, look up the pieces of the king's dream, and then they'd interpret it for him. Okay? But here's the key, though. They needed to know the dream. right? Verse 5. The king answered and said to the Chaldeans, The word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb, and your houses shall be laid in ruins. Now, I legitimately think that he could not recall his dream. That maybe it was just some kind of fuzzy recollection in his head. But I also don't doubt that he was using this dilemma to test his advisors as well. Do you see that? You know, some think that actually Nebuchadnezzar was too smart to buy his own system. Like that he was a cynic of the Babylonian religion. And now he finally had the chance to put these guys on the spot. In fact, you get the sense as the dialogue goes on and on that he already takes them for phonies and he's sick of it, right? You're all a bunch of fakes. Because after they request him again, this is what he says in verse 8. The king answered and said, I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word for me is firm. But if you do not make known the dream to me, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me till the times change. Okay? What he's saying is all you're doing is trying to buy time. I know what you're up to. You're stalling. Okay? You think I'll just cool off and forget about it as time goes on. But you're wrong. So the king was already insecure because of the effect of the dream. And when you could not remember a dream in that culture, it was a very ominous thing. Okay? So he's panicked about it all. And now he's getting heated because they're not they're refusing to do this for him. And here's what's happening in all this, okay? This is an amazing thing. God is making a mockery of the entire Babylonian religion and he's using the king of Babylon to do it. How about that? Is that not amazing? Because without any knowledge of the dream, none of their trickery, none of their flattery was any good. So what you see here is the utter fakeness of human religion. Human beings cannot, in and of themselves, obtain supernatural truth. And finally, at the end of this, these guys just confess, you know what, we can't do it. We can't do it, right? Verse 10, they try to flatter him. They said, there's not a man on earth who can meet the king's demand, for no great and powerful king has asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. The thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods. 
whose dwelling is not with flesh. Well, they're right about that, aren't they? Well, their credibility is completely lost at this point. The king's not only angry, but furious, right? And at this point, he issues a decree in his rage that everyone, all the wise men, you're done. I'm finished with you. If the best are worthless, then what good are the rest of them either? And he just issues a decree to kill everyone. Okay? So this situation has escalated from a personal crisis of the king, I, I want to know my dream, it's troubling me, to a full-blown crisis of government genocide, right? Of which Daniel and his friends are now a part of, right? Verse 13, so the decree went out and the wise men were about to be killed and they sought Daniel and his companions to kill them. Now here's what I'm going to say, okay? The stage is set. God has orchestrated every part of this. And he has brought this crisis to his servants. Daniel didn't even have to go looking for it, right? Now just imagine what's happening. Okay, what's going on in the king's palace at this point? People are in a frenzied panic, right? There's turmoil in the streets. Even the guards were probably unsettled by the sudden task that they were, had to fulfill. Now remember our question, right? How do I respond to the crises of my times? In fact, there are four responses I want you to see in this text. Four things. Okay, number one. Four responses in the times, in the crisis of my times. Number one, composure in response to a crisis. Look at the composure in response to what Daniel is about to hear. Verse 14. Then Daniel replied with what? Prudence and discretion. To Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. So, while all around him the world is melting... Daniel remains composed. He isn't swept away by the sudden fear. He's apparently already well known to the officials, right, including this commander. Because what you see is that as Arioch comes to Daniel's house, he's not only restrained from carrying out the decree, but he even allows Daniel to go and talk to the king, right? He gives him an opportunity to go speak with the king himself. And the text says that Daniel replied with what? Prudence and discretion, right, to this commander. The word for prudence or wisdom here is a word that's related to the word to taste. To taste. The idea is that he had a developed spiritual taste in how to address different situations. Okay, he exemplified Proverbs 25.11. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and settings of silver. This is the kind of wisdom that comes from living in obedience to God. Daniel had a developed sense of how to speak according to the situation. Think about it, okay? First, he disarmed Arioch, okay, by opening him up, okay, and he asked him, hey, what's the decree? Why is it so urgent? And then Arioch tells the matter, it's like they sit down together and have a nice conversation about it, 
right? The man who was sent to kill him, he sits down and is able to have a conversation with him. Think about that. And not only that, but Daniel goes, then goes before the foaming-at-the-mouth king, right? Nebuchadnezzar, remember, who just issued a decree to kill everyone. And Daniel goes to him and says, I need some time. How about that? Okay. What's the one thing that the magicians, the enchanters, and the whole lot of them were asking for? We need time. And did they get it? No. But Daniel goes before the king, and what's the king give him? Time. How was that? Because even the king saw a calm courage in this 17 to 18 year old apprentice, and he was won over by his prudence and discretion, composure, powerful. So the king agrees to his request. Okay? Now the matter's in Daniel's hands, right? And he doesn't know the king's dream. So what does he do? Well, Daniel hit the dream books, right? He got his gathers. I'm gonna, I, better, I better start studying my books, right? No, Daniel did what every servant of God does, right? In verse 17. I did too much there. Right, verse 17. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to his buddies. Okay? And verse 18. And told them to seek the mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery. When Daniel and his friends had nowhere else to turn, they knew that God was faithful. They understood that they were in Babylon for a purpose. So what they do? They sought mercy from the God of heaven. Did you notice that Daniel didn't rely on the fact that he had a gift of visions and dreams? He said, we know what, I can do this. God's given me a gift. I can handle it. I'm competent. I can stand my ground, right? He didn't presume that his righteousness was going to, you know, just allow God to give him the dream. God doesn't owe them anything. And Daniel didn't expect to get anything without praying about it. The child of God meets a crisis on his knees. He or she goes to prayer, and you call others together, and you seek God's mercy. Now there's a third thing, okay? In this special season of prayer, God comes, right? And he reveals to Daniel in a vision the mystery. Okay, But I want you to know, I don't, I don't want to stop there. So God answers the prayer. Isn't that great? God meets them. He delivers the prayer, but that's not where this ends. Okay, There's a third response here, and it comes after God intervenes. It's this. Don't miss this. Verse 19, right? Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. So you see worship in response to a work of God. Worship in response to the work of God. Prayer in response to a problem, but worship in response to when God answers. You know, too often the people of God are, we're fervent before the throne when we have that need and we, we're in that crisis, but as soon as we've gotten what we want, we disappear. One writer has said, relief unaccompanied by worship is never an adequate response to the mercies of God. It's not. And look what Daniel praises God for, right? His wisdom, his power, okay? his sovereign governance of human history, his fellowship yet with them. So Daniel is quick to give praise back to God. Now there's one final response in this passage, okay? About our response to the crisis of our times. Okay, and it's this, number four. 
I don't want to miss this. Okay, here's what we see. Deflection in response to attention. Let me show you this one, okay? Notice what happens next in this account, right? Verse 24. So Daniel's got it. He's praised God. And now, isn't that something like, think of how urgent this matter was, but Daniel still stopped to worship God. Okay. Then, verse 24, Daniel goes to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and said to him, do not destroy them, right? But bring me in before the king, and I will show the interpretation. Verse 25, Then Arioch brought in Daniel before the king in haste and said to the king, here's Arioch's words, okay? I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. Now, um, did you notice what Arioch says there? It's kind of funny, kind of a funny thing because he really didn't find him. Actually, Daniel came to Arioch. Okay, he wasn't the one looking. But you see, understand what Arioch's trying to do? He's trying to make himself look good before the king. Well, you know what? Hey, um, king, I'm the guy who found the guy who's the answer to your problems. So I just want to make you know, make sure you know that I'm I'm the guy who found him, right? But he puts it in such a way that it almost sounds like it's Daniel and it's Daniel's skill and his ability to solve the mystery, right? I found the man who can do it. But in fact, there was no man, right? There was no man. And Daniel was quick to correct this notion to the king, right? What's he say in verse 27? King, no wise men, no enchanters, no magicians, no astrologers can show to the king the mystery that the king has asked. But what? Okay, so... No one here on earth. Daniel deflects glory away from himself. It's not about me. And he points it where? But there's a God in heaven. <laughs> what a jab at the, the Babylonian religion too, right? Okay, they're supposedly the experts of the stars, experts about reading the heavens, and they, they know nothing about the God of heaven. And it is this God who makes known the mystery. Notice again verse 30, right? Daniel says here, But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living. It's nothing to do with me. But in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king. This has something to do with you, king. And that you may know the thoughts of your mind. What a model for us here, right? Rather than joining the bandwagon of self-promotion... The servant of God takes every opportunity to know, I'm not going to exalt self, but I want to exalt you. I want you to get... So whatever ability I have, whatever opportunity God gives me, whatever possession I have, you use it to exclaim, wow, God is great. Do you get that? Four responses. A lot of stuff in chapter 2. Daniel's responses to the crisis of this of his times is what we need for the response to the crises of our times. We're too quick to buckle, right, to fold up and to retreat to some safer place. But what about when the crisis comes knocking on your door, right? Life is chaotic. Often it moves from one crisis to another crisis. But what? God's word and his ways are here for us to learn how to overcome and meet those moments being well supplied with the Spirit of Christ. 
Right? Daniel didn't, you know what Daniel didn't happen to him because he met this crisis? Well, he didn't become a nervous wreck as a result of it. In fact, he seems to grow in more and more composure and godliness. And God will do the same for you. So where do you start? Well, faithfulness today. You get in the word and you get to the throne. Is that enough for you? All right, I'm going to stop there. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord God, what a chapter. And Lord, it's for us. It has been written down for us today. This is not beyond us. God, that we can exemplify this kind of attitude of composure, Lord, of uh, prayerfulness, of worship, when our eyes are focused on you. And God, you are the God of heaven. You, you were then and you still are now. And you make known, oh God, what is true. Oh, thank you. Thank you for your sovereignty that is still, you are still on your throne today. And we come to you asking for your help in our moments of need. In Jesus' name. Amen.